Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time World Series champ Mike Sosha. Sosha at the plate, Hernandez playing back of the runner at first, and that's ripped to right field and deep. Strawberry goes back, she's gone! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today, we welcome the winningest manager in Angels history, three-time World Series champ. And we had some pretty good battles in the early 2000s. Mike Sosha. Sosha, thanks for coming on the podcast. Booney, great to be with you. So we're going to get to uh, your managing days a little bit later. I want to start with uh, your playing career. You, as a kid, okay. you grew up just outside of Philly, and yep. you signed with the uh, L.A. Dodgers. And I want to know if it's true. Did I think Tommy, Tommy Lasorda, had a hand in that signing, getting you to sign out of high school. Is that true? And, and tell me all about it. It's true. It's a, it's a simple story, but I was all scheduled uh, to go to Clemson University. I had a scholarship to play down there. Uh, and, and this is the summer right after I uh, graduated high school. And it's, it's uh, two weeks after the draft. The Dodgers had drafted me um, in the first round, and I was still going to go to Clemson. So all of a sudden, uh, I get a phone call one afternoon about noon, and it's, it's uh, time of the sorta. And he says, Mike, I'm going to come pick you up in an hour. We're going to work out of Veterans Stadium because the Phillies were in town. Excuse me, the Dodgers were in town to play the Phillies. So I said, okay, sure. So went and worked out with him, totally sold him the idea of signing with the Dodgers. And next day I signed, it was on my way to Walla Walla, Washington. So, yeah, Tommy definitely had a hand in it for sure. So you signed with the Dodgers. Um, you get to the big leagues in 1980. And in 81 right. – you're already in your first World Series, one of three to come, and, and we'll talk about it as the podcast goes on. But how was that in 81? You're right kind of in, in the middle of Fernando mania, and I had a teammate of yours on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Steve Sachs, and, and he, right. he touched on it. But I want to hear the Socia version. What was that like as a young kid uh, coming up with the Dodgers in, in your right smack in the middle of, of that Fernando mania? I remember as a kid watching going, who is this guy? Yeah, well, outside of New York, you know, which obviously, uh, you know, you get a lot of attention playing baseball there. Uh, Los Angeles was uh, the West Coast version of that. And you had Hollywood, you had, you had, you had 3 million fans a year coming to watch Dodger baseball. It was un- unbelievable. We had a crowd under 40,000 fans for a night. They were like saying, what happened here? Did, you know, did, uh, you know, how many no-shows were there? Because it, it was unbelievable what the support level was for, uh, for the Dodgers. It still is, but it was, it was crazy. And along comes this, uh, you know, this Mexican pitcher, uh, uh, all, you know, had really just only pitched a year or two in the minor leagues, 19 years old. He makes it to the major leagues in, uh, in 1980 and just pitches a little bit. Then 1981 gets a chance to start opening day. Uh, because of an injury to Jerry Royce and the rest is history. Uh, what was it like? I mean, he had we we had, we had a stop probably every other game he pitched at Dodger Stadium because someone was jumping out of the stands. Uh, some girl wanted to give him a kiss, or some some guy wanted just to shake his hand on the mound. It was crazy. Uh, and and uh, you know anywhere we went, uh, you know Fernando uh, 
Fernando was the the talk of the town, uh, and the run he was on with us was unbelievable, and he was a huge part of us uh, getting to the playoffs and, and winning the World Series in 81. Yeah, because I remember as a kid watching, thinking, wow. And and then at the beginning of my career, I got Fernando at the end, though. You remember Fernando at the end? He's He was always famous for the screwball. But in the end, he was throwing cutter after cutter after cutter. Yeah. So I, yes. I, I never got to see that up. nasty yeah. Fernando. I couldn't get a hit anyway. Guys, the oh, bats are man. flying off the rack. I couldn't get a hit. Well, he, he was um... – um, you know, uh, he, he reinvented himself uh, when he was young. I mean, he was, he, he had unbelievable, uncanny control of his fastball and he, and, and, uh, threw five pitches and all of them looked the same. It was like a wiffle ball. Uh, and he was pitching, you know, he could, he could, he could pitch in 92, 93 if he wanted, but he always kept it like 90 miles an hour for control in and out, up and down, whatever he wanted to do. Uh, you know, he had one of those screwballs where you could almost, you know, you could, you could really hear the spin. That's how tight he threw it. It was unbelievable. And as he, he hurt his arm and after, uh, in 1988, he hurt his arm and redefined himself. And he, it was, it's funny. He's coming back pitching against the Cardinals in St. Louis and I'm warming up him up in the bullpen and he was having a little trouble getting his fastball in. And, 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 uh, you know, he said he wanted to throw some sliders in and threw some sliders in and warmups and, he kind of said, here, I'm going to try to make it a little tighter. You know, he's talking in Spanish and he, he threw this nasty little cutter inside and he goes out there and pits a shutout, just throwing a lot of cutters. And, uh, you know, that's after her going from a guy pitch, you know, pitching at 90, 92 down to like 86, 87, uh, redefined himself and pitched, uh, you know, for, uh, I don't know how many, another, what, six, seven years in the major leagues doing that. So he was, uh, not only tremendously, uh, uh, you know, wasn't tremendously talented. He was tremendously talented, but he was also very, very smart about what he needed to do to to adjust and get guys out. And um, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was some talent. So you're you're running the '80s. You're playing with the. Di- I mean, kind of the. I don't know. You know, as a kid, I, I look at it as the golden age. I guess it's because I was a kid, and that's you know that's when I was tuning in the most and watching my dad and. And those Dodger teams right. were were pretty darn good. And you get to the '88 World Series, and everybody knows what happened in that World Series with the Gibson home run. But once again, I talked to Saxy about it too. But it's different. I, I, I talked to him as a second baseman, what it was like. Uh, you know, when we're protecting a no hitter, or, or or you know, just what it's like on that bench for for us defenders. But you're right in the middle of still to this day, I look at it as one of the most amazing things. I've, I've played defense behind a lot of great pitchers. But talk about Orals 59 games. You're right smack oh, dab in the yeah, middle of it. I can't. I was just looking at it today. I was my dad was over today. We were talking about it. And I said, Mike's coming on the podcast. And I said, 59 innings. It's still unbelievable. Uh, talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, it's unbelievable. I don't know if anybody. Any pitcher will ever have a a season um, that Oral had in 1988. Uh, not only you know you're talking about the 59 uh, scoreless innings, um, and I'll go back to that you know in a second. But also pitching eight shutout innings of first playoff game, which gets it up to you know uh, you know 67 shutout innings before he gave a, you know a couple runs up to the Mets. Um, uh, he he came out of the bullpen. He not only started on on two days rest, came out of the bullpen on zero days rest and saved Game Four for us in New York. 
and then comes back and pitches game uh, seven. He shuts out the Mets and then in the World Series, uh, you know, wins game one and game five and uh, and and we're on our way. And uh, it was uh, I should say wins games two, one, one game two and game five in the World Series. And, you know, we're World Series champs. But the, that 59 inning scoreless streak was uh, it was just uncanny. It was uncanny about. The, the parallels it had to Don Drysdale's, like there was, there was a controversial play in San Francisco with Don Drysdale hitting a, a batter. There was a controversial play with Oral Hershiser with someone going out, sliding out of the baseline and all of a sudden being called out and the run didn't score. Um, and the last day of the season, uh, he, you know, we couldn't score because he needed to pitch 10 innings to get there, to get to the record. So that means if we score even one run, uh, then he's not going to be able to get the record because it'll be over. You know, he'll even if you pitch a shot, it's only nine innings. So it, it, it was crazy. Of course, we're trying to score, but we don't score. It's just unbelievable how all the pieces fell in, and all the parallels you drawn you can be drawn to what Don Drysdale did. I never saw a, a guy just uh, so confident and so consistent with his pitchers uh, for for that long of a run. I use you know I, I wasn't around when Sandy Koufax was pitching or like we mentioned Don Drysdale, but uh, you see pitchers that'll get on that group on that group for maybe two or three starts, and they have a tough one, or they don't make the pitches. Oral was so locked in; it was just uncanny. Any time that he needed, he he, uh, you know, he was trying to trying to bury that sink on the outside corner, he did it. Any time he needed to bounce a curveball, he did it. Any time he needed to throw a curveball for a strike, he did it. You name it, whatever the situation called for, uh, he was able to 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 make a pitch and. Um, uh, yeah, you're, you're right about the defensive aspect too. You know, you had, you know, you're, you're out there playing defense, and you don't want, you don't want to be the one that has a ball go through your legs, and all of a sudden, you know, that you, you break a streak at, at 45 innings that could eventually, eventually did it. So there was some, I think there was some, um, I think there was a little bit of, you know, maybe uh, uh, subtle pressure on the defensive team when he was pitching. But also, we were so wrapped up in trying to get to the playoffs. You know, it was we had two bad seasons. And it was '88, and you had we had a tough division. So we were wrapped up in a pennant race, and I think that kept uh, a lot of us, or, or most of us, just concentrated on playing the game and not maybe getting distracted by, uh, you know, something like that. And and when you talk about it, it, it's funny to me listening when you said, you know, we had to find a way. Nine innings wasn't enough. I mean, almost the, the streak had to be unbelievable where you're saying, well, if we get him nine innings, he's definitely going to pitch nine shutout. But we need to get him that tenth. You know, nowadays, yeah. especially you and your manager, you're going, shoot, I hope we can get five, six and, and only give up two today. We're talking <laughs> that that's just funny right. to me. And it just kind of speaks yeah. to to what he was going through and how locked in he was. And I told this story that, uh, that 88 world series, I'm a, I'm a freshman at USC and, uh, my younger brother, Aaron, he comes up, he comes up to, to visit me at SC and, and we're kind of sitting around my dorm room and I make a phone call. Somehow I get a hold of Lasorda. He leaves me two tickets to that, to that Gibson home run game. I put my, I put me and Aaron jump on my scooter. You know, it's not even street legal, no plates. I go side streets all the way to Dodger stadium, get our seats. We're probably the worst seats in the house in right field in the upper deck. I can look into the parking lot from our seats, but we're there. So it's the eighth inning. And, you know, I'm, I'm a kid that's grown up in this game. And I kind of look at Aaron. I said, 
we got to get the hell out of here and beat this traffic. <laughs> I oh jump on the scooter. We drive all the way home. I get back in my dorm room and, and uh, he's circling the bases. But I can always say oh. I was there. I just wasn't there there. But, uh, so you're, the only it, person, it, uh, you're the only person I heard that admitted they left early. Everyone I left. Says, oh, yeah. no, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. But if you watch the home run video, you watch the ball going out of the park. And you see, and as the as the overhead, uh, you know, the camera up on the stadium is, is is taking a shot of the of the baseball. You see all these brake lights go on, uh, with this line of traffic that's exiting, uh, you know, the parking lot at Dodger Stadium, and they're probably thinking like, "What did I just miss?" Uh, you know, because they're obviously listening to Vince Scully on the radio. So, uh, you know, you're mentioning that you're mentioning all the surreal moments of of '88 with Oral on the streak and all the things that uh, that we went through. Um, Kirk Gibson, I mean, it, it, that that moment uh, has to be the uh, just just the the most perfect moment in all of baseball, unless you were an A's fan, obviously. But you, it's a story of Casey at the bat, and this time instead of striking out, Casey comes up and hits a home run, which uh, which just never happens. So uh, just under those circumstances, it was uh, it was just a magical year. So you finish your career in '92. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to guess back then you, you had inklings of, of wanting to manage. Did you ever, was it in your mind that you were going to be the one that followed Lasorda in L.A.? When it, when no, it got close know, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah Booney, to be honest with you, um, I knew I wanted to stay in the game in, in you know, in some measure. Uh, we, we just had our, had, had two, we had two little kids at home, so. You know, I didn't know how much of the travel aspect was going to come into it because you know what you know the the crazy schedule we're on in Major League Baseball. So I never really thought managing was an end. Uh, you know, was was going to be the the end game for me. I I felt that I love the game. Um, I love the instructional component of it. I love the position of catching. And the Dodgers um, asked if I would like to you know do the catching for the organization in the minor leagues and. Uh, so I did that for for uh, about three years, and uh, and I absolutely loved it. I loved that instructional component. I really didn't get in, you know get the managing. Um, I guess get get the um, uh, get kind of the managing bug to say, hey, maybe I'd like to managing give managing uh, managing a chance until I uh, I managed an instructional league for the Dodgers, and then I managed in the fall league in 1997, and. It was like I was like, man, this is like the game was really fast back then. Like I'm talking about in the dugout for a young guy who had never managed and played. You realize how many things go on and how fast it was and how much you had to learn. But I was really intrigued by it and uh, got a chance to manage in Albuquerque in '99, and then got uh, had an interview with the Angels in 2000 and was hired uh, was hired by Bill Stoneman. And in 2000, you take over the Angels. You go on 19 years. Um, right. When you come up a Dodger and you play your entire career, you know, as a player with the Dodgers, was it kind of different? Because, you know, there's that there's that thing with the Dodgers and the Angels, and it's been around for a lot of years. But all of a sudden you wake up and you got this angel uniform on. It's it's kind right. of a I don't know. I, I, I know, you know, without getting into the story too deep, I, I know when you're Dodger blue your whole life and then you go over to Anaheim, it's a little bit different. Did you ever think that would happen? Uh, well, there's no doubt you're right. It's different. The angels were always looked looked at as the stepchild of the Dodgers. You were, uh, 
you know, you're always second class. And your dad knows this firsthand. I mean, there were some tremendous angel teams uh, through the, uh, you know, from like 79, 82, always, you know, through the 80s that, that really always were in the shadow of whatever we did up there in L.A. with the Dodgers. Uh, so, you know, you always, you always felt a little bit of that. You always felt that, you know, that, uh, you know, you're always under that, you almost getting suffocated by the Dodgers. So taking that on, it was, it was an opportunity to manage. Um, it was an opportunity to bring a lot of the theories and a lot of the, um, concepts that are important to you. Uh, fortunately for me, I had guys like Ron Randick and Mickey Hatcher, Alfredo Griffin. Now these guys were all groomed by the Dodgers and came down and, and, and we brought a, a, a little different style of baseball than normal American league club. And it was, uh, and it was something that I think our guys really gravitated to. Um, but as far as like, I never put much stock into saying, Oh, I'm managing the angels now. And they're always, you know, they're always uh, uh, second to the Dodgers in LA. No, you never really felt that way. You're on a mission to try to create and try to get going and try to, uh, create that uh, that tradition through playing great baseball that uh, you know that every organization strives for, and that's really what our goals were coming in in 2000. And um, you know we were able to turn things around, able to win the World Series in 2002. Yeah, and I saw it up close, and and as I mentioned coming into the to the show today, um, we had some pretty good battles, and that's back in and. <clears throat> To those out there listening, uh, I talked to Mike the other day. We we had a phone call and kind of reminiscing a little bit about those early 2000s in the American League West and just how strong we were. I mean, 01, right. uh, the Mariners, me and, uh, you know, my club, the Mariners, we went 116. Uh, 02, you end up being World Series champs. but And then I said, you know, for us in 02 and 03, we're winning 93 games and we're not making it to the postseason, and it was just one of those runs where we kind of had friendly rivalries with with the Angels and the Angels with the A's, and it, it was kind of all of us. But it was a fun time for the game, and I and I always remember when we played the Angels before the game or before the series, we'd sit down and go over the other club, and I'd always say, guys, I'm telling you. Sosha likes to, he really likes to put the pressure on the defense. I said, these guys are going to run the crap out of these bases. They're going to take an extra base every single time. I remember Joan Figgins used to give me fits at second base, keeping him close. And he'd almost look at me. I'd keep him as close as I could, but depending who I had on the mound, if you're not going to give me a look or, or keep it, he's going to take third. He's going to, he's going to go on contact with the infield in. And I remember teaching these guys, I thought, man, everybody should play the game like this. This is how you play the game correctly. I always admired that about you and your teams speak a little bit uh, where I'm off or, or if I'm right on. No, I, I think you're right on. I think that there's a, um, there's a component to this game that is kind of getting, um, kind of getting pushed aside and just getting swallowed up by uh, a lot of um, a lot of analytical uh, thinking and and a lot of stuff that is um, that is data driven as to how you score runs. And that's the base running component. Um, You know, there's, and there's so many positives to the base running. And if you can get 150 net bases more than another team, you're pushing your team OPS up almost 35, 40 points, which is huge. So this base running component not only what it creates um, as far as real real bases, the extra bases you'll take, 
But what it creates on the on, on the defense, maybe the infield end's got to come in two more steps than usual because they know you're going contact. Or outfielders have to charge the ball a little bit harder, and uh, and and maybe they uh, maybe they try to rush a throw that uh, that's offline, or an infielder that uh, that knows that we're on the move, and they ha- they they get their coverage messed up, which opens up holes. Uh, this is all part of the game that I think that is very very important in 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 really giving you that advantage because the the line for winning is so so thin right now. They're, they're, you know you're talking about some really tremendous teams that. That, ha- that that are that are equally balanced and equally matched. Well, what's going to what's going to set the difference? It's going to be like what the Dodgers did in two of the games in the World Series against Tampa. They won it with base running. Uh, you know, you guys ran in Seattle ran the bases very very aggressively. I think the only team in our division that didn't was were the Oakland A's, and they did it by sitting back and and just trying to draw walks and and use their power. And and they had uh, Hudson, Mulder, and Zito, which didn't make it too tough really for for those guys. Those guys were all. You know, three of the top five pitchers in our league on their staff. So, the, I think the, the 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 important part of baseball is about how you incorporate base running. I think should be part of every club. You might not use it as much in some games, but it should be there. And uh, and and uh, so I just know that coming through the Dodger organization, that's the way we were groomed. They did it kind of quietly. They didn't really do it. Um, you know, I'll make any big long speeches, but they told us the importance of the importance of setting up positive offensive opportunities through base running, uh, particularly the first to third. Uh, one out, you go first to third, you got a much better chance of scoring run than you do first to second with one out. So all these things, Booney, all add up to, I think, a, a, a style of play and a, a philosophy of base running that is really, really uh, lacking right now with a lot of clubs. And I think it's just uh, I think it'll come full circle when a club will start to take advantage of it again. Like the like, you know, if you look at you know look at the Cardinals in in '85 stealing 300 and some a little before your time obviously, but stealing 300 and and some bases in a uh, in, you know in, in a year uh, as a team uh, that's that's unheard of that's unheard of nowadays. But that's the way they needed to play, and it took them all the way you know to the World Series. So. You know, all these things that are that add up to offense are really important, and the base running aspect of it, I think, is critical. And I know that it was so, it was something we stressed with with uh, any t- any group of guys that we had on our team. Yeah, and and I said earlier, I said I envied that about you guys because I really did. Uh, there weren't too many times I'd stand up in a meeting and and speak, and almost to the point as I wanted to pass it on to my teammates is, and you might want to think about running the bases like the angels and still to this day, you know, when I speak to kids, I think that's, that's really important. And, and as you touched on, we're getting away from it a little bit in this game and and it is so important. And and I hope we start to trend back uh, as time goes on, you know, we're caught up a lot right now in the analytics and, and uh, you know, in the world series, it, it kind of, kind of got shown a little bit. And when when right. uh, Snell got Snell got, Snell got taken out of the game, and I don't necessarily think it was a bad thing. It might be a positive thing, shining a light on it's not all analytics, um, especially when you're managing. Of course, yeah, I, I think we exactly. I think we'd be crazy. Yeah, I'm sorry. The funny go ahead. Thing about this is no, go ahead. I said the funny thing about this is that the analytics point to the the positive aspect of what base running will create, and. Um, the only thing that that is is really data driven in their minds is giving up and out. Well, 
if you take the net outs, like I said, you take the net bases, take away the outs, you take the net bases, and if we can get just 150 more, like I said, than another team, which is very easy to do with Oakland because Oakland was so station to station. They never created anything in the bases. So if we can get 150 more bases, uh, and we both had as a team OPS 720, well, now we're at 755 or 760 team OPS, and they're, they're at 725. So all that stuff adds, you know, adds into it. So, uh, the analytics, the, the, everything is data driven. Uh, a lot of it you can apply and it makes sense. Uh, but the part about base running, they're looking at the one little aspect of where you, you don't want to run into an out. And, uh, and in my mind, I was okay if we're going to get thrown out going first or third. We get, let's say we get thrown out four or five, six times a year, but we go first to third 120 times a year. Well, that's, a, that's an easy trade-off to say don't get thrown out at all, but only go th- first or third 20 times, 30 times like Oakland did. That makes no sense to me. I, I want to I I push the envelope and create as many situations as we can. And the guy in the batter's box, I know that our guys are very appreciative of that. When you talk to like Garrett Anderson, who had 120 RBIs in a year, or Tim Salmon and the guys, Troy Gloss, these guys are all really, uh, they loved it because they loved the fact that, hey, I'm hitting first and third with one out instead of first and second with one out. Hey, this is great because my miss hit, still going to get a run run in. Mm-hmm. And I think they I think they all, uh, you know, first and third, you got a left-handed hitter on that. You got a hole at first base because the first base has got to hold the guy on. And even with shifting where maybe they get the second base but way over the four hole, uh, you know, the third base has got to pay attention to the, you know, to the guy at third, and you got one guy, the shortstop's got to cover all the middle of the field, both sides. So those holes all of a sudden get big enough to drive a back truck through. And uh, that's the situations that we always like to create. And isn't it amazing, too? You get, you know, you talk about the, the big arms in the outfield, and he's got a cannon or don't run on him. Well, it's amazing when you put that pressure on him and, and you run on him and you almost tell him you're going to run on him. Uh, how much, how inaccurate their their throws become. They're not used to anybody running on them, and all of a sudden, when you basically tell them we're going to run right in your face. Now it's like you oh, said, yeah. you're going to get thrown out here and there. But uh, I always love that aspect of your teams, and and it kind of symbolized what your teams were about. Let me get to O2. You go to your third World Series. You win again. Two as a player, now one as a manager. Uh, but it had to be a pretty cool thing. You're you're uh, squaring off against an old teammate, Dusty Baker. Talk about that a little bit. Right. No, too. Well, Baker um, was part of the, the, you know, just part of the nucleus of the great Dodger teams in the '70s and '81. He he was uh, one of the leaders on the team when when I was a rookie coming up. Um, and Dusty, uh, you know, it was a tough team. You know, it's tough. It's tough. You know, I'm 22. Fernando's 20. We've got a lot of young guys coming up to the major leagues in 81, our first full season. And you're, you're, uh, you've got a lot of just veterans that are hardcore and are just out to win. And, uh, you know, they've been beaten by the Yankees in 77, 78. And so as we came up, these guys, like, they expected you to, to understand how to play. And Dusty – was one of the few veterans that really would sit down and talk to you and not just expect, uh, or not just, uh, you know, uh, expect you to play a lot of way, a way, but, uh, but help you to get there and help you to understand the league and help you like what little points are you looking at that are going to make this game, uh, give you a little bit of an edge or make this game maybe a little bit easier. So he mentored all of us young guys coming up and, 
you know, and, and I and I saw what Dusty did, you know, coming through as, as he started his uh, managerial career and, uh, you know, and, and, and had great success there. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're facing off in 2002 uh, against Dusty. And, you know, we're good friends. We're still good friends. But, uh, you know, you know how competitive uh, everyone in the major leagues are. So uh, I wanted to win and he wanted to win. And we, we made sure that we knew that. How has the game changed uh, from a player's perspective and, and how has it changed as a manager? I think there's a, 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 there's a lot of ways the game has changed. You know, the game keeps evolving and it's evolved. It's different than it was in 1940 and it's different than it was in 1980, uh, you know, all the way, all the way coming through. Um, you know, in some ways this game is tougher and in other ways, um, in other ways, uh, you know, it's it's maybe uh, you know there's maybe things that are helping players to uh, you know to, to to play at a higher level. Uh, so it's changed with the players because I think physical conditioning has has really uh, taken a hold. Where we never had any of that when I was playing. We where Nautilus machines had just come out, but we had you know a trainer, assistant trainer. You never had strength and coordinating. I know what helped me is, as you know, you get to that long season with your stamina. Uh, so guys are throwing harder. Uh, you're seeing pitchers, everybody, every bullpen's got guys throwing, you know, 95 miles an hour or plus, where maybe we would face on a staff, you might have two of those guys that you would see. And maybe one was the bullpen, one starter, or if they were both in the bullpen, you know, you, you'd have a pretty, you know, you, you had a pretty powerful uh, uh, back end of a bullpen. So, uh, those, I think, I think obviously the players are, are changing. Um, as far as managing, uh, there's no doubt that Tom Lasorda didn't have to explain things to us like he did back in the '80s because it was taken that whatever the manager says is is like gold, and you know you've got to take it at face value and you just got to do it. Tommy would explain it to us, but he didn't have to. You know, we were like saying, "No, oh, you want us to do this? We're going to do this." Okay. Now I think there's more of a collaboration as far as communicating with players and letting them understand the situation. It's probably more important now than it ever has been for managers to understand that. Uh, the way the game is, is being played is obviously being directed by, uh, by some, some philosophies, which are, are born of uh, look at, let's see how many, let, let's see how much slugging percentage we get. The slugging percentage is an important component of offense. Uh, and so that's what they want to focus on is to have a team with high slugging percentage, thinking that's going to be the offensive juggernaut. That's not always the case, and it, and it, and and really, you're going to see sometimes have very very high slugging percentage, and probably as far as run scored or in the middle. So, I think there's that there, there's that little friction going on with managers that, that understand the importance of having a well balanced team. To right now, you're seeing a lot of data driven uh, elements just pointing to like I said on the offensive end, uh, slugging percentage is really what they're looking for. And I always counter that with saying, you know, um, OPS is the holy grail of of um you know of 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 what we're looking at in data to how to evaluate a player's uh, strength and so that's on base plus set, plus slugging well what's the biggest part of on base percentage the biggest part of on base percentage is your batting average so i don't think you can uh, i don't think you can discount how much uh, batting average will add to a player's value and and i think uh, you know right now we're looking at that being watered down and saying it's not that important well I know, was, I know being there, being, um, you know, being with these players and, and playing the game and seeing it evolve and seeing guys go through a whole season, batting average is an important component on measuring 
a player's worth. And, uh, and so, you know, there's that whole thing of how you're going to set your lineup and, and, and how you're going to use your players and how you're going to use your bullpen. It's, it's, uh, I'm going to say it's changing, but I'm not going to say that part's evolving because when you say something's evolving, I think you're saying it, it, it changes for the better. That's why I look at it. I don't look at that part evolving. I see it as changing. So, uh, you're seeing a, a different theory of how you're going to, how you're going to piece together a bullpen and you hear quotes like anybody can pitch any inning. And we know that's not true. Uh, and, and you're seeing how your, your bullpen management should be used. You're seeing how your starting rotation should be used. And you're seeing game plans that are, you know, throw everything at a hitter from the first hitter of the game, not because you don't have that, that understanding. You're going to face the same guy the third or fourth time if he's a leadoff hitter because most starting pitchers are out of the game by then, no matter how, how good they're pitching. And um, so I, I think that, that, the game has changed a lot from the from the manager's uh, perspective. There's there's a lot more, I think, burden on a on a manager to uh, you know to conform to a lot of uh, a, a lot of me, um, you know uh, mega data, uh, macro data. Uh, I don't I don't think that most of us live as much as the in the macro as we do in the micro. Uh, the macro will give you a lot of understanding about a projected player's performance. But I think the micro pitch to pitch, inning to inning, you know, that's what we live as a manager. And and so I think some of that is changing, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I, I still think, you know, from from just my life experiences, it's I think it would be naive to to turn your back on technology and data and analytics. I, I think without a doubt, it's, you know. We're evolving as a country. Oh, no. our, our our data is unbelievable. I think I think that's a huge part of it. As a player, I'm kind of envious in some ways of the players today because of the intel they have. I wanted to get every piece of information I could on my opponent. That being said, the great managers, and I got to play for, for some real good ones, the great ones relied on their gut a lot. And, and I think that's what separates – a great manager from a good manager is is the guys that really had that instinctual gut, and it seemed more times than not they made the right decision. And speaking to your point of the three hundred, I'm a huge proponent of that. You know, people, oh, three hundred's not a big right. deal is on base percentage. I said, oh yeah, who do you want up with the closer on the mound, a runner in scoring position? I'll tell you, I want a guy with a three in front of his in front of his average versus that guy that's hitting 220 with a great on base percentage. You ain't going to walk that guy in. So the people that say average exactly. isn't important, I say, okay, I'll take Tony yeah. Gwynn up in that situation. He's going to give me the best no at doubt. bat. No, I take, you take Tony in any situation. My gosh, what a, what a, what a hitter. Unbelievable. But listen, back to your point, and I think it is important. Um, the data and the elements you get from from looking at data and tendencies and everything that goes into it are absolutely applicable and you use them. I think the data on shifting is brilliant. I think you can shrink the field better now than you could, um, you know, even five, seven years ago. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So the way we're playing defense is, is uh, in this game is evolving. And I think it's evolving in the right way. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see it as long as you see these big swings and the big lift in swings, their miss hits going to be uh, on the ground is going to be pulled to the pull side. So you want to have more guys over there, no doubt, because they're not going to change their swing. They're still trying to get the ball in the air and lift it, and um, and so you want to play. You want to play that. That's uh, that's something you could you could you could totally put into play. 
but we, we, when you're talking about uh, you know uh, the macro data that's not really applicable in an inning-to-inning uh, case, like uh, you know we always use the thing about K zone for a pitcher to see how proficient he is throwing the slider in the K zone. Well, that macro number doesn't tell you much as much, Booney, because when we're going inning to inning, we're going count to count. I want to know, does he have the, you know, he might have a 45% K zone on his slider in the zone overall. But when he's trying to throw for a strike with intent, which is called IK zone, uh, you know, he's throwing it for 80%. He can throw eight out of 10 and get him over the plate, just flip it up there for a strike. And when it's 0-2, He's he's throwing like you know ten or fifteen percent because he's he's sweeping it out of the zone. So the average doesn't tell you much, but the micro tells you a lot about a pitcher's ability. So like all this data is very applicable, and and it is evolving, and it is making game planning um, much more common sense, and and helping a lot of a lot of pitchers become more effective and efficient. And I think you're seeing things move along, uh, you know, move along those lines. Uh, but as far as like uh, some of the things that we're that we're talking about, um, a lot of the data is for the front office to make decisions on, like I said, projected player performance for acquisitions, and are they going to are this players are going to sign long term, or 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 where they project this players, um, you know, where his production is going to be, um, and and a lot of these these numbers are 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 for that front office to make those decisions, not for a manager to make a decision uh, in the eighth inning. I'll give you one quick example real quick. We had a, and, and then, you know, I'll get off this, this data thing. We had a player that his, his lifetime OPS against left-handed pitchers is 960. So this guy's killing left-handed pitchers. He's facing this one pitcher. And I'm not, I'm not kidding you about the stats. We look at the stats against this one pitcher. And this pitcher was not really anything special, but he just had this guy's number. He's four for 41 with 21 strikeouts against this left-handed pitcher. And he's supposed to kill left-handers. So as a manager, are you supposed to just look at the macro and say, well, wait a minute, he's going to hit fourth for us because he's got a 960 OPS against left-handed pitchers. Uh, but he's got 40 at-bats, which is, is significant because uh, against one pitcher, that's a lot of, of at-bats against one particular pitcher. He's he's four for forty one and he's got a he's got an average exit velocity of, of seventy nine miles an hour. So like I said, the macro is great. The macro gives you an idea, but as a manager, we live with the micro. And I think that's right now where there's there's that little, you know, tug of war going on. That's very cool. I've I've never heard it put that way. The macro and the micro. Uh, a few weeks ago I had uh, LaRusse on. And as you know, he's making his comeback. He's going to manage the right. the White Sox this year. Uh, last week, I had Bruce Bochy on, and he told me, wow. "Booney, it was a good break, but I'm ready to." He, he'd consider coming back. Does Mike Sosha have a comeback in him? You coming back, Sosh? <laughs> I don't. Uh, if I'm looking at the uh, the little crystal ball right now, I don't see it in my in my future. Um, I'm really liking. Um, where I am right now, uh, I just turned 62. So it's not like I feel like I'm a, I'm a fossil as far as age. Um, but I like what I'm doing. I'm giving back to amateur baseball through, um, uh, major league baseball and working locally. We have a, a, a summer collegiate team down here at thousand Oaks that I'm involved in. So Looney, uh, long, long and short answer is, uh, you know, this game's always part of you. 
you never say never. Uh, but if I'm looking at that crystal ball, I'm seeing like I'm really liking uh, where my life is right now. And last one I, I got for you, I didn't want to let you out with this because it kind of our two positions, you as a catcher, me as a middle infielder. Um, your best, you you were known uh, in your career as 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 a guy that really blocked the plate. Kind of, you were the poster child right. for it, actually. You know, my dad was actually pretty good at it, pretty good at it as well. Uh, your and, dad was your dad was tough and good. He was yes. And my question is, you know, because now I look at, you know, uh, I worked for the Oakland A's for a few years on the minor league side a few years back. And I used to love talking middle infield and how you turn a double play and, and just techniques. And and now all of a sudden they come in with these new rules and you got to be anchored to the bag and nobody can take you out. I, I, I can't stand it because I thought that's where a, a second baseman, that's where you earn your money. That's where you earn your stripes is that second baseman that can hang in there and turn that big double play that wins a game. And now all of a sudden they've completely changed. And I think actually made it more dangerous to stay anchored to a, to a base. They changed similar at the catching position. They changed the rules. Uh, what do you think about that? Has it, has it been good for the game uh, or do you not like it? Well, Booney, nobody likes to see the, you know, catastrophic, catastrophic injuries that, you know, take away somebody's career. Nobody, Nobody likes that, and and uh, you know you, you're you're always trying to look at ways you can kind of make the game safer in all ways. But everything is in the rule book. If it's applied, there were no changes that needed to be made. And what what Major League Baseball did, unfortunately, was take skill sets away from players. They made every second baseman, no matter how bad you were turning double play, be able to turn it like you did, or Robbie Alomar, or you know, the guys that were incredible, Bill Mazeroski going way back. Uh, they took away the ability to, to, uh, to make a play at the plate away from guys who would hang in there uh, long enough and, and, and make a, uh, and try to make a, you know, try to make a tag, save a run for your team. Uh, so I, I think in the rule book, everything was, everything was in there as far as uh, what you need to do. Like a catcher could not block the plate unless you had the ball in your possession or you, if you were in the act of, of fielding a ball, like a throw off the line or anything like that, well, that's all you need. You don't need to have all these other little, you know, addendums to it. There's like so many of them that you're like saying, oh, if your left foot is two inches over here or over here or over there, that you, you might give up a run. Uh, at second base, you knew that, hey, if I slide in the second base, I have to slide. I can't roll. I need to slide, and I got to be able to touch the base with my hand. And if I do that, then I'm helping. I'm helping, helping to save an out for my team. And on the defensive side, like like you were just saying, if you could get, if you could find a way to get up in the air or make a throw or get out of the way of this slide to turn a double play, you were you were helping your pitcher by getting another out. That's huge in our game. That's huge. So the short answer is, I think when you legislate things that take away a skill set of some players, uh, I think it's wrong. Uh, I think the guidelines are very, were, were already in the book. The, the rules were already in the, in the rule book. The guidelines uh, just need to be uh, applied by umpires, and especially going to you know instant replay now. 
So no, I'm not real. I'm, I'm I'm not a real fan of a lot of the things that happen around the play at the plate and the uh, and the pivot at second. No. Love it. We're on the same page, Mike. I just want to thank you so much. This has been this has really been educational. I think I think the uh, the listeners out there are really going to get a. Uh, baseball one-on-one from somebody that's been there from from the 80s and and managed through late uh 2018 uh i really appreciate you coming on and what we do in the podcast uh at the end is we have a question from the fans and to give that question none other than dan levy hi mike how are you hi mike hi guys how are you cheer up dan would you I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Okay, Mike, here you go. This one is from Brian in D.C., and he wants to know, Mike Trout, is he the best baseball player today? Uh, I think uh, Mike Trout is the best baseball player today and the baseball baseball player of the last 10 years. Uh, I can't go back uh, and say he, he compares with some of the guys that I never saw um, I never saw like uh, Ken Griffey Jr. when when he was 19 years old in the big leagues, um, but I can only tell you that uh, Mike Trout is the, uh, the the best baseball player uh, in in Major League Baseball. Yes. Well, you sir are the best person for coming on today's podcast. So thank you so much for sitting down with us. I appreciate it. Great talking to you guys, Booney. Keep going, and uh, I love talking baseball, guys. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know what that sound is? That means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to rock? Let's do it, Danny. All right, let's dig on in. And this one is from Jimmy in Reno. Brett, what was your 40 time? No clue. What's a good 40 time? That's even a better question. I don't know. The best 40 time I ever knew was uh, getting the biggest (laughs) bottle of beer I could find and slamming it before it was time to watch TV. No, um, to to try to answer that question seriously, we never ran 40s, and we were never timed. Um, I don't remember ever being timed in a 40. Uh, kind of how we were we were uh, critiqued as runners was our was our time home to first. Uh, as soon as we made contact with the ball, how fast we got to first that that was kind of what we were uh, critiqued on uh, from a speed standpoint. And I, I think today it's still that way. Some guys get out of the box a little quicker. You take into consideration if the guy's left-handed, if he's right-handed, if he has a full follow through, if he doesn't. So there's definitely some factors. Um, but yeah, I was always uh, critiqued, uh, you know, my, my runner number by home to first. All right. There's your short answer. <laughs> yeah. Next one is from Ben in LA. Let's get her out. Brett, is Tom Brady really the goat? I'd have to say without a doubt. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous at this point, isn't it? I mean, it's, he's going to his 10th Super Bowl. He's 43 years old. Second team. Uh, Second team. I mean, he just picks up and says, I'm going to go from one of the historic franchises in all of sports, uh, the New England Patriots, with, with an iconic uh, coach, and we're going to go to Tampa Bay. And by the way, we're going to go to the we're going to go to the Super Bowl again. <laughs> he's unbelievable. I was I was talking to somebody about it today. I think he's eclipsed Jordan. 
because no. you got the yeah. I'm well, telling I'm you, it is you sport. There. It is sport. I'm telling you why. Let me explain it. All right, I got the counterpoint. Go ahead. With Jordan, we know how great he was. Unbelievable. And up until about five or six years ago, it was pretty much a blanket statement. Uh, Jordan's the greatest of all time. Now, LeBron's in that in that in that conversation. When you talk about Tom Brady as a quarterback in the NFL, there's nobody else in the conversation. The greatest of the greats admit that Brady's the best. You see what I'm saying? You don't see that in any other sport. So I think right now, 2021, uh, Tom Brady is the biggest goat uh, in all the major sports. I will say this. What Tom Brady is doing right now is beyond amazing. And I'll also say that, especially for what it is that he's going through, the age that he's at, and just the high level that he's performing at, I'll give him he's the greatest quarterback to ever play the game of football. Now, here's the difference. Tom Brady only plays one side of that football. Michael Jordan was on all defensive teams and did it on both sides. It does matter because you can only control the option. If you're a wide receiver, football doesn't lend itself to baseball. You're a defender. Exactly. You're an offensive player. Basketball, same. Football doesn't allow for that. But he's not. But he's he's only on the field for only half of the game, whereas the defense on the other half. Michael Jordan is on both sides. Right, but when we talk goat, we're not talking. Uh, we're, we're talking about his actual position. His position is goat, meaning the greatest quarterback ever. Now, usually the greatest players are either a tailback, a wide receiver, maybe a. a, a, a I don't know about it. You know, a, a cover corner. Um, when you're talking the greatest ever. So I think in football, you you line it up. Basketball is the greatest ever, and it's kind of out of all the positions. Baseball, the greatest hitter ever. You know, and now it breaks down into the greatest defensive center fielder, the greatest defensive catcher, defensive shortstop. That can be broken down differently. But if you're just talking about the greatest of all time quarterbacks, it's Tom Brady because he I doesn't agree. have the option of playing defense. I agree with that. He's the greatest. That's way too long of an answer. Next. <laughs> I agree. He's the greatest quarterback, but better than MJ in any sport. No way, buddy. All right. Let's go on to the next one. I didn't say better. All right. This final question, Brett, is from Hardy in Cleveland. Brett, can you barbecue or cook anything? <laughs> I'm I'm actually decent on the barbecue, and that's the only thing I'm decent. I'm really good at oatmeal in the morning, so cook. Uh, but I'm actually I I I do a decent steak. Ooh. Pretty good on the grill. I'm pretty good on the grill. Outside of the grill, uh, not so much, but uh, pretty good on the grill. I can I wouldn't mind trying to boon steak. I bet I bet you could probably throw it out pretty good on that. Yeah, I'm pretty good. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody who went ahead and submitted questions. They did so by tweeting at the Boon 29. That's where a lot of these questions were picked up from. Also from Brett's Instagram and Facebook socials. He's all over those as well. And if you want to go ahead and submit some questions, feel free to do so. Again, at the Boon 29. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. Not a hard guy to find. Very fun to follow. For the Brett Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. This has been a fun one. We'll do it again soon. Talk to you guys later.